Hello and welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Andrew Sullivan. Andrew is a political commentator, former editor of The New Republic and author of numerous books, including this one, Out on a Limb, a collection of selected essays from across his career. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for joining me. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've come a long way from East Grinstead. I actually used to live in East Grinstead and uh, now you? you're in Massachusetts. Yes, I did. And um, I noticed that it used to be like a, a comedy town that people would mention. There's, there's a reference to it in a P.G. Woodhouse book, for instance. It's also in The Norman Conquest by uh, Alan Eggborn. And it's uh, yeah. there's a line about a, a couple that went to have a dirty weekend in Eastbourne and it was all booked up, so they went to East Grinstead instead, which is a guaranteed <laughs> laugh. <laughs> I was so nervous about it that when I went to Oxford, the first thing I did in the union was say, before I say anything else, I have to declare one thing about me. I am from East Grinstead. And of course- You might as well get it, get it out in the open, you know? Um, you always put, put those in front first, you know? What's So maybe for people who might not know about uh, your background and what you've achieved, maybe if you can give us a, a sort of broad overview of your origins, how you got into writing about politics, how you ended up in America. It's quite a lot, but maybe a sort of potted version of that. You know, I got a, a classic 11 plus to a, a grammar school um, where I, I studied next to Keir Starmer for five years. Uh, he was literally in the desk in front of me, Starmer Sullivan, and we thought for about five years. Then I got a scholarship to go to Oxford and then I got a scholarship to go to Harvard to do a, a graduate degree. And it was there that I got an internship at the New Republic in the summer and I got interested in all that and I started writing. It was then a fantastic magazine, probably the best in the country. Very lucky to have that opportunity. Went back, finished my PhD, then went on to work at the New Republic, then was made editor at the insanely young age of 26. Did that for five years. Then I basically uh, was a freelance writer. I wrote for the Sunday Times, but also launched uh, and was spent most of my time campaigning for marriage equality in the early 90s uh, and late 90s when no one else was really prepared to do it. Then in 2000, I started a blog, one of the first political blogs called The Daily Dish that ran for 15 years, uh, became really popular. Uh, I took it from various uh, media entities to media entities, The Atlantic, Time, etc. Uh, and then in 2015, I kind of had a collapse uh, because I was just exhausted from the internet and I had burned out completely. Took a year off, came back, wrote for New York Magazine, got fired by New York Magazine last summer for, uh, uh, for not going along with the coverage of the riots last summer and yep. for distant sins I had committed long ago in opening debate on certain difficult issues. Yes. Uh, so then I landed a, a Substack, which is what I am now, the Weekly Dish. And yeah. that's what I put out every week. And I'd love people to subscribe. It's 100,000 now people getting it every week. And, uh, and I'm enjoying the freedom and relationship with my old readers that I used to have. Well, I definitely want to get onto the Substack because so many writers are moving in, in that direction. And of course, it gives you that editorial freedom. Uh, but before we, we get onto that, um, it's ju it just strikes me uh, from your book um, that although uh, there is a development in, in your thought process over the many years, I mean, you, the first essays are from 1989 in this book and all the way until 2020. Um, but there are uh, consistencies within your worldview. And you've always described yourself, with, am I right in thinking of as a liberal conservative? Would that be a fair way to put it? Yes, a small c conservative, a conservative that wants to conserve liberal democracy. I mean, that's 
that's the charge. And I, I wrote my dissertation on my colloquial shot, probably the most uh, intelligent conservative thinker of the last century. Uh, got to meet him at the end. I was the only, the second dissertation on Oakshot ever written. Mm -hmm. It was ignored, but that gave me the framework. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for you seeing that. I, I, I'm basically a, a small government, small C conservative that believes in pragmatic decisions in government, but also yeah. suspicious of radical and especially ideological uh, change. Uh, and ideological change fermented by mobs is sort of the precise opposite of what I believe in. And so, yes. so it's been, I, I, you know, I was saying that in the 90s, I've said that throughout my, my career. The big shift was when I used to be a much more enthusiastic interventionist in American foreign policy, mm -hmm. and the Iraq and Afghanistan wars really talked me out of that. Yes, but it's interesting to me that you do have this, this uh, consistency, and yet you seem to alienate so many people on the left and the right, and it seems as though the designations themselves are now just shifting continuously. So, so it, might be, it might be that you're difficult to place, oddly enough. Well, I am difficult to place, um, and that means that you offend the sensitivities of both tribes. And that's where we are now. We're in, we're in a tribal situation in the United States. And I was canceled by the right early in the 2000s for attacking the Iraq war and for attacking the use of torture and for the fiscal craziness of the Bush administration. Yes. Attacked by the right, canceled because I supported Obama, but then canceled by the left because I'm not an identitarian. I'm, I'm very deeply hostile to critical race theory and social constructionism. I've done my stint in political theory. I know where these ideas come from and they are truly destructive of a liberal society and an open society. And that's, so I'm now canceled by the left. So well, it's, exactly. <laughs> it's nice, it's kind of freeing. You, you, neither side wants you. Uh, yeah. And so you get to say your own thing without those constraints, which has been a wonderful thing. It always has been for me, but it's it's wonderful now with Substack that I can do that. Well, I mean, that's but that's really important is, is you know, I, I often feel that those who have this sort of ideological fealty, they're not doing thinking for themselves. This idea that you, you know, you have to subscribe wholesale to absolutely everything that your team believes in, I think, is some of the most destruct, uh, the destructive ways of thinking that we are living through at the moment and is causing so many problems. Yes. And it's it's particularly concentrated, unfortunately, because I don't think it's actually that common among ordinary people who mm. are generally speaking much more open-minded about the questions and more pragmatic about it but it's concentrated in the elite at this point and especially the media elite uh, mm. which has turned so much of american media into simply a kind of tedious uh moral instruction every day about about uh, uh, systemic racism the prevalence and sustaining of white supremacy uh, an entire revolution in language, ideas, and illiberalism, specifically in the last five years. Can I take you back to an early essay you wrote about gay marriage? Uh, and actually, I've been reading you for a long, long time. And actually, this book, uh, Virtually Normal, uh, which I read at university. And, um, you know, it, the last chapter, I would think it's towards the end of the book, where you really promote this idea of gay marriage. But you're doing it from, uh, essentially, it's a conservative argument, though, isn't it? And, I, and apparently, you alienated a lot of gay people at the time. I was picketed by gay people when I was uh, arguing for gay marriage in the 80s and 90s. It was regarded mm. as a heterosexist, patriarchal institution we should dismantle 
not yep. join. Uh, and a bunch of us were able, I think, to consistently make that argument and actually had resonance with a lot of ordinary gay people who, who, if they were lesbians, wanted to secure custody of their children. If they were gay men, particularly during the AIDS crisis, to have the security of a spouse there for you when you were sick. Mm. Um, I watched, as I went through that crisis, I watched, I watched men being separated from their husbands on their deathbeds, turned out of their apartments, unable to even go to the funeral, the most unbelievably inhumane stuff I witnessed. And I think for a lot of us watching that gave us a practical reason. And we carried the day. I mean, we, the, the mainstream gay groups did not want to do this. They thought it was incredibly counterproductive. They didn't understand it. But we managed to get, get it through. It took a lot of effort. It took some yeah. risks. We nearly lost everything under George W. Bush, but we, 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 we kept going and, and we got there in the end. So, yeah. Um, mm. It's I, not just to do with legislation. There's been a general attitudinal shift. You know, I, I, I would rarely meet someone who, who opposes gay marriage now. And if they do so, it's usually for religious grounds. But in that first essay, you can almost hear me saying, I know I sound crazy, but please yeah. bear with me. Uh, there's, it's, there's a sort of historical irony in the book in the way, because you can, the, the book starts with um, the case of gay marriage, but it goes through the calamity of the epidemic. And then we get yeah. to the end of gay culture. And now we get to the, the plague of the alphabet people attempting to deconstruct homosexuality. So it yes. has this weird, weird arc to it. I find it fascinating and also the speed with which this all took place. I mean, I remember uh, working as a receptionist while I was uh, studying at university and saying that I think gay marriage is a no brainer and, you know, we should have that, that option. And they, the person I spoke to laughed, laughed and ran across the office to tell someone else. And that wasn't that long ago. And yet now it's just the norm. I know. Now, why is a good question. And, and my answer to that question is why do we do well is because we actually engaged in argument. Yes. We did not demonize our opponents. We presented ourselves as human beings. We emphasized what we had in common with straight people, not what we didn't have in common. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and AIDS, in a, in, a, in a terribly ironic way, because it revealed, it outed essentially hundreds of thousands of gay men across America. Yeah. And it wasn't spared in small town America or the families the people everywhere who realized the uncle that used to show up at Thanksgiving, who never, we never asked about, is suddenly dead. Why? People's brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. And that, that revelation of gay men across the country, along yeah. with the sense of our being beleaguered and actually suffering terribly, kind of killed off all these conspiratorial notions of who gay people were. And it also broke the association in the public mind between homosexuals and merely sex. Yes. I mean, sex is part of being homosexual, like it's being part of a heterosexual. But to, to, to reduce us entirely to sex acts uh, is to miss our full humanity. And, yes. and of course, the other thing that happened was when I'm making that argument, I'm told I'm anti-sex, and then I get all this bilge from the left about uh, being a Puritan, which I am the last person on earth to be a Puritan. Uh, so that happened too. It yeah. was not pleasant. It was it was at times incredibly difficult. And to go through that and to fight those battles while my friends were dying too. I mean, virtually normal came out the week my best friend died of AIDS, yeah. and it was it was both an exhilarating but also traumatizing period. But without it, 
I don't think it would happen this quickly. I think a lot of uh, people accused conservative gay people at the time of of effectively, yeah, as you say, demonizing sex, demonizing their way of life. Uh, I know I've uh, read Larry Kramer talk about this, that he was he was suggesting the promiscuity might be part of the issue and and that and I remember reading John Boswell actually talking about how the perception of gay people and the promiscuity in Fire Island and that kind of thing that straight people look at that and they don't know if that's an ideal or if that's a failure of an ideal they just don't know and and in a sense the move towards gay equality gay marriage normalizes says yeah gay people and straight people we can be the same we can be as boring as each other I suppose yes uh, there's that famous New Yorker cartoon of one or elderly couple in some upper west side apartment and one's reading the paper and says to the other um i see the gays want to get married and and his, his the, her husband says haven't they suffered enough <laughs> and, and that was part of the joke but of course it was too easy a joke uh yeah. yeah and i was in london i was i was challenged at a big public meeting by peter tatchell who told yeah. me that he rejected same-sex marriage and rejected everything to do with it and i responded by simply saying this, you, you know, with all due respect, you cannot reject gay marriage because yeah. it's never been offered to you. You don't yes. have, I am fighting for the choice. If you want to reject it, it's a free country. Go ahead, live whatever life you want. But that's, for that's why it's need, a no brainer because you're not yeah. saying everyone has to get married. You're saying just the option should be there. And also in, in all of this, lesbians are often ignored as they are in so many of these debates. Yeah, they they don't have a problem with sex. They don't in the sense that they're not we don't have a spasm of lesbian STDs. We don't we, we and they have children many more often than gay men and they require defense of their basic security. And yeah. I, it, it was, in, you know, to, for a while you went from one state to another. You were the mother of a child in one state and you had no relationship to them in the other. And your yeah. car could break down. Things could happen. You could have a medical emergency. Stuff like that was terrifying to live under those conditions. To what extent do you think that being gay and being a conservative uh, and the perceived contradiction within that uh, has sort of driven you? I mean, I'm thinking about things like when uh, when Peter Thiel uh, went to the Republican Party conference and, and I think it was the Advocate magazine said Peter Thiel might sleep with other men, but he's not gay, <laughs> be, be, you know, because he supports the wrong side. Uh, is, is that something that you face? Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, from the beginning, you know, the gay press would always talk about so-and-so said this, but whenever I was mentioned conservative gay and right. someone says this, I was always put into a category as not truly trustworthy and not to be taken <laughs> as seriously as everyone else. Uh, and of course that's frustrating uh, in a way. On the other hand, I was okay with it because I felt that regular straight people needed to understand that there is a diversity of view among mm. homosexuals, that, that homosexual men, for example, have been among the most important defenders of our culture. They have been the guardians of standards. They have been incredibly important in our cultural institutions and our universities yeah. and teaching professions and maintaining of standards. Uh, you know, you see a good musical on Broadway or you see a great high mass at the Vatican, gay men made that happen. You know that yeah. happened. Yeah. Oh, element. the Vatican is high camp, let's be honest. Well, yes, <laughs> uh, it's, it's very high church, high camp, and it's, but, it's, but it's also beautiful. And yeah. so I, I, my last chapter in Virtue Normal is what are homosexuals for? And I, I've gotten exhausted with this question of who's against us, who hates us. Can yeah. we 
can we take yes for an answer and go to the next question, which is yes. not what other oppressions can we find, but what can we give back? What role can we play? And sim in similarly, with, with, with the conflict with conservatism and the, uh, the perceived conflict between conservatism and homosexuality, there is, of course, the, con the, the conflict with Catholicism uh, and homosexuality. And to, uh, how have you uh, reconciled that? Because the catechism, I'm speaking as a Catholic myself, I know that the catechism is pretty clear uh, about where the church stands on same-sex relations. It absolutely is, and I'm not debating that. There is an essay in the book called Alone Again Naturally, which is about natural law, the argument from natural law for the illicitness of homosexual relations. Rather than call the church homophobic, I, I tried to reason through the arguments to show where there were problems in them. And I went yeah. to Notre Dame and Boston College and made these points. And there should be a more humane way of integrating us into, into our churches and into the institutions that represent us. That doesn't mean, for example, in the Catholic Church, the sacrament of matrimony can be changed. It can't. Yeah. Uh, as, as Pope Francis just said, don't, don't make me, don't force changes we can't make. Yeah. But the greater openness to gay people the, the greater welcome to them uh, and the, the less defamation of us, which Francis has definitely inaugurated, even though he hasn't really changed doctrine very much, yeah. uh, is a huge, I think, victory for those of us who, who, who both recognized uh, that the church has some important truths that, that have ignored us or have actually presented us as a problem. Yeah. Uh, into a situation where, in fact, we could be understood to be part of the natural law, that we should be as Aquinas in, in line with our own nature for reasons we don't fully understand. But, uh, yeah. but God, God is a mysterious God. And, you know, Pied Beauty is my favorite um, Manly, Jared Manley Hopkins uh, poem because it talks about the variety of nature and yeah. the variations in nature and the variations don't have to obliterate the theme, they can actually enlighten it and provide a drop shadow to it that helps explain it. And that's, I think, within the Catholic tradition, how you might begin to see homosexuality. And that's, that's in the book. So that's a, that's a thorough attempt to explain it. In terms of this idea of uh, variety and, and bringing up something you just touched on before, about uh, the notion that the, the gay community is a diverse community and it has all sorts of uh, political affiliations, religious affiliations and the rest of it. But as you said before, um, the, the battle was won uh, by persuasion, by a process of persuasion, argument, empathy, uh, compassion. And do you see, because um, I often draw a comparison between that struggle and what's happening now in terms of say the trans debate and routinely now, whenever, I try to get engaged with someone with this discussion about gender identity ideology specifically, the immediate reaction is a kind of knee jerk. Uh, you're hateful, you're transphobic. And uh, I've not met anyone from that side of the debate who is skeptical about gender identity ideology, the kind of gender critical feminist side um, who, who are transphobic. I've met, a, the, I'm not saying there aren't transphobes because there are, but a lot of these people are just smeared that way and they're never persuaded as a result. And we're getting nowhere, I think, because of that. It's like, we're not learning from how the gay, the gay battle was won. Do you think my analysis is right there? Yeah, I think, you're, I think we have unlearned how we were successful. Um, and, but that has always been a tendency in the movement, in, this, in the gay rights movement, to, uh, to, to, to move from integrationist civil respectability politics, as they call it, into this, yeah. this 
this uh, rebellious, subversive, hate everyone, everyone else is a bigot. Yeah. The way I described it in the 80s was we have to get past a debate in which one side yells perverts and the other side yells bigots, because yes. that doesn't help anyone. How, uh, how did we look, get past that? I always thought of myself, and like a lot of other gay people who are in this position, as very in favor of trans rights. And in the United States, trans people were read into the 1964 Civil Rights Act only two years ago under Trump. Yes. So it's over, basically, it's over, apart from a small few areas of dispute. But instead of taking that as yes for an answer, they want to push it even further to make people have to, have to believe that a trans man is indistinguishable from a regular uh, man or a trans woman is indistinguishable in every respect from a, a, a someone born uh, a woman. And I just, I can't, I can't, I will not say things that I don't believe are true. Yes. I would treat every trans person with the dignity and respect they deserve. I'd use whatever pronoun they want, except yep. unless it's completely bonkers. In which I'll just tell them I think it's bonkers. Um, but, uh, and I've also found that many transgender people in reality, uh, they don't buy this crap. They yeah. just don't. They've lived lives. They know, for example, the gender binary and the sex binary is real. Otherwise, yeah. they wouldn't have had a struggle in their entire life. Exactly. I mean, but this is the concern, isn't it? Is that the thread that I think links all of these various offshoots of what we might call applied postmodernism, the critical race theory, the queer theory, uh, the gender identity ideology. What seems to be the thread is, is the expectation that people will simply buy into a pseudo reality, they, they, that they will have to learn to deny the observable reality before their eyes. And uh, most of us are, will not be complicit in that and, and to, to smear people as hateful because they won't do so. I think that's quite a disturbing development, isn't it? It's deeply disturbing. Well, this, this word hate is also a, a, a strange word. I, I have a piece in the book called What's So Bad About Hate, which was deliberately mm. provocative, and believe it or not, was the cover of the New York Times Magazine in the late 90s. So it's like the, the atmosphere has changed also dramatically. Some of these pieces were run in mainstream media not so long ago. Um, yes, it wouldn't be published now, I don't, I don't think. I don't know, but but, but but hate itself is such a crude term for a variety of, let's say, discomfort, hostility, unease, unfamiliarity, ignorance. There are a whole variety of shades in which people might not get someone, especially a transgender person. They've never met one before, all of that. Instead, we want to make them all hate them if they don't agree with this ideology, which is a yes. terrible strategy for winning yes. hearts and minds. Uh, it seems as if they are much more interested in pursuing heretics than seeking converts. And, and but also they seem to be blind to their own obvious hateful behavior, you know, when in terms of the, the way they attack people online, dox people, threaten. There's a lot of violent rhetoric around this kind of activism now. And that is seen as a sort of gestures of violence in the name of compassion. You know, it's it's it's, it's like the people burning people at the stake in the medieval period who thought they were doing God's work. It is, and I've, I've noticed that there is also a, one of the features, unique features of the particular new movement is its use of vulgarities and expletives in ways that we were very careful to avoid. Mm. Uh, and, and as, you know, one to 11, immediately, yeah. uh, the slightest tone. And the way that what that achieves, of course, it puts you on the moral back foot because you're constantly being accused of something 
you can defend yourself against. I mean, you can mm. make arguments. You can never say, no, I'm not a racist without sounding like a racist. Of course, um, yeah. That's the Kafka trap that they put. Somehow you have to kind of get past that because once you get past that, the arguments actually don't really work very well for the extreme position on trans identity. And a lot of trans people understand that too. Look, yeah. one of the things I object to about the left, uh, the, 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 the identity left, is that they take communities like the gay community, they misdescribe us and co-opt us, all of us, into a particular position. And then those of us who don't agree with that are then described as not part of the community, as yeah. opposed to accepting the fact that, you know, the first thing I discovered when I came out, Andrew, was how many regular ordinary blokes were in there. Yeah. I was shocked. I was expecting to see everyone a drag queen and everyone's going to potentially murder me if I go home with them. That was the image I had. I mean, that's long ago before for your time. But no, it was a bunch of ordinary, diverse, interesting Americans with all sorts of views. Yeah, they had been alienated by lots of conservative forces for good yeah. reason. But were they activists were they left ideologues no they wanted to get on with their lives they want to go to the bar they want to have their their, their boyfriend or their husband it, it, it's 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 just not like that and yet this small clique had defined us forever and yeah. even now are trying to obliterate our history before stonewall and rewrite the history of stonewall as well this other thing is this very flippant attitude to history, this kind of <clears throat> revisionist impulse. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've I've read uh, the the historical accounts of what happened at Stonewall, and then you see people talk about how the entire the entire riot was uh, instigated by black trans women. Some of that bears no resemblance to reality. It doesn't. At all. Well, even and, and the, even the two people they cite weren't there at the time, and we know that. <laughs> uh, but. But that's how it happens. I went to a David France movie about Marsha P. Johnson documentary, mm. and it, it labeled her on the screen as co-founder of the gay rights movement. And I, I was at a screening with him and I said, look, what about the Mattachine Society? What about Frank Kameny? What about the Daughters of Bilitis? What about Harry Hay? What about the people who stood up in the 1950s and 40s and 30s and 20s? And he said, well, this is just the, this is the truth I want to present. Right. now. What do you do with that? I mean, this, this taps into the, the, the now common narrative of lived experience and the idea that uh, we all have different truths and those truths, the, the positionality argument, in other words. And I don't know how you, I mean, one of the things you say in your book is that you say that the thread through all your work has been to look at the world, to make sense of it as best I can, and to tell the truth. We are living, it strikes me, at a time where to tell the truth is perceived as a hostile act if it does not accord with certain ideological values. And if we take a specific example of, because you've been very outspoken about, about critical race theory, when, for instance, uh, theorists over here will claim that Oxford University is systemically racist, and then when you look at the data and it reveals that actually instances of racism are vanishingly rare, that data is, is just ignored or you're accused of being racist for pointing that out. But surely an accusation, I'm not saying systemic racism can't exist, but a suggestion that it does exist should be the beginning of a discussion and an investigation uh, uh, rather than the end point and working backwards from a, pre, uh, from a preconceived conclusion. How do you break through that is what I'm asking. Well, it's unfalsifiable in a way, so yeah. you can't. You can marshal arguments and data to show that it's incorrect. And yeah. I think you do that consistently and insistently and calmly and carefully. It can, in the long run, break the fever 
And that's what this is. This is a moral panic, uh, especially in America. It's so reminiscent of things that have always happened in America, uh, uh, which are these moral panics and revivals that seek to seek out the dangerous people within them and purge them for wrong things. And from Salem through to uh, the Great Awakening in the 19th century, to the Hollywood blacklist, to the yeah. lavender scare of the 50s, to McCarthyism. This is deep in American culture. As if we never had an established religion. So everybody makes up their own religion and it then seeks to police their own religion on other people. And this is, I think the Great Awakening is a, is a, kind, of, a kind of religious movement without God uh, and without salvation. And, and in that sense, it has a long history in American life. Or, for example, we just had a, to give you a simple example, we're supposedly living in a white supremacist country over here. Mm -hmm. And by white supremacy, I mean, again, that word has lost so much of its meaning. But 90, the Gallup poll showed that 94% of Americans support interracial marriage. Yes. And in the 60s, that was somewhere in the zeros. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can look at the number of women graduating college and doing incredibly well in the new economy. And they will still insist that we live in this patriarchy uh, mm. that gives no chance to women. It is, it is, it's almost as if the more inequality we get rid of, the more enraging the small inequality to the left become. Uh, they want, they sort of engage in a sort of Martin Luther King Jr. envy. They want to be the generation that they changed everything. Well, sorry, too late. We already did it. Yeah. And these little issues you are fixating on are, first of all, trivial in many ways, and secondly, not supported by the data. Uh, yes. But, you know, my, I once said, I want the gay rights movement to do what we did and then shut down and the rest of and we can all just get on with our bloody lives as if yes. that's hard enough, right? It's hard enough. Uh, but no, they have to be on these crusades forever because the crusades of the meaning of their life. Have you had any luck? Uh, in I mean, it strikes me at the moment that it's less about persuading some of these ideologues than de-radicalizing them at this point. H have you had any uh, luck in terms of, you know, having so someone who is so sort of zealous about this stuff, seeing your work and, and, and changing their minds, thinking, well, maybe the world is a little bit more complicated than, than that? No, okay. Certainly not, certainly not publicly or personally. Right. Like the, the thing about these mood changes, and I'm beginning to see them as interesting features of anti-wokeness beginning, the antibodies are beginning to come out in America. Mm. I think what you do is that you, it's the person listening to that exchange whose mind you change. It, so that's the real like, target, is the spectator. It's not the, it, right. Yes, because I've always said to you that I went to a fundamentalist church to argue for gay marriage. Yeah. I knew that none of these people are going to be have their minds changed. But I also knew that if that were broadcast somewhere, if someone overheard this, they might come more to my position. And I know that it's exhausting to do that continuously, but if you yes. keep doing that, you will break through eventually, if you're right. And especially on social media, where it is a spectator sport, basically. And, you know, I've always been of the view that arguing with someone who is utterly intransigent is still worth it because you might end up sowing the seeds of doubt. But with this added thing of people looking on and seeing who the, who has the rational argument, who has the data to support their view, I think you're, I think you're right. And, and you've probably made more, you've probably broken through, through more than you think. <laughs> I hope so. Well, I get lots of private messages saying, keep going, keep going, don't let <laughs> all these people at New York Times and all these major newspapers and magazines 
And I'm like, well, what the, well, why aren't you doing this? And they're like, well, yeah. you can, you know? And, and so I, you know, part of me feels like, well, since I can, I should, you know? Do you and, never feel, do you never feel exhausted? Do you never feel like I'd, I'd rather just not write about, I'd rather not get this kind of adverse attention? Yes, all the time. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's draining to be mm. constantly assailed as things you're not and to put up with a, a real, you know, fusillade of, of hatred and demonization. And one of the reasons I put out the book is because I felt the best response of these drive-by shootings, as it were, mm. uh, is to say, well, look, you have an issue with me? Here's 62 different essays from 32 years. This, yeah. is, this is my work. You'll see it is not what they are saying it is and see that it's a diversity of topics and a similar sensibility throughout. Yes. And I didn't change. You guys went out of your minds. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's right. It's, it, it, put, it puts where you, where you stand on record in a really yeah. clear, a clear way. And, for and those, let's just put it out there. I mean, most younger gay people would have no, think of me as an enemy. Yeah. They have no idea that I was fighting for gay rights in the 1980s, in the 1990s. When no one else was, I was the only openly gay journalist in Washington in 1990, you know, and 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 to regard someone like that as the enemy of the LGBTQRSDUVWXYZ movement is is I mean, you know, I'm used to it. I don't really care at this point, but it's it's grotesque. Absolutely. I wonder if I could ask you about I mean, that's the. Um you know we've been talking about the strategies of how 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 we can break through this but in terms of politically i mean you, you were you were very uh vocal about your opposition to trump uh to the extent that you saw this as an existential crisis for democracy effectively that he had to go um, for liberal democracy for liberal democracy and and you know i i have to say I, I breathed a sigh of relief when he didn't win at the same time um i have a lot of reservations and i'm very nervous now about you know i mean joe biden was seen as the anti-woke Democrat candidate, but he is, I'm afraid, uh, worse than anyone could have imagined on this score. And he does strike me as enabling this potential catastrophe, you know, and and do some people have a point that maybe to keep Trump in place might have been the safer option? No, they don't. He's out of and his mind. He's yeah, out of his mind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, at some level, that's your baseline. If someone is mentally unstable, unhinged, incapable of making rational decisions, unable to read, and also has such a temperament that is explosive uh, and constantly full of rageful outbursts, yeah. I'm tired. No, no one like that should be led, allowed near a position of authority. This, is, this isn't Boris. This is, this is a crazy person. And... I'm sorry, but I have I, I do not apologize in the slightest. He was a disaster. And, and when I say liberal democracy, exactly. He mm. also fueled the far left. He legitimized a lot of their arguments. He gave them credibility. This is something I wanted to, to ask. He seemed it... to represent everything they hated. He he made their argument that we live in a white supremacy somewhat plausible, uh, given given his base and given his rhetoric. Uh, and so I also hold him in part responsible, not wholly at all, because they the responsibility is theirs alone. But I don't think he was making things better. I really don't. Yeah. And, yeah, but, uh, and I think he, he yeah. made the politics of irrationality and emotion even more powerful than it is. 
Well, it, there is a shared, uh, I mean, going back to this idea of individual truths and lived experience, I mean, he certainly had, has had his own truths which were divorced from reality. And sometimes he would deny something he'd said and you were thinking, but I can just check on YouTube. It's right. It's right there. And just it, it seems like both sides have this capacity for what they now call gaslighting. Uh, and, because they're motivated by tribal victory, not for a political advance for the common good. Mm. That, that, that basic civic understanding which both parties used to have you know we have our positions we will fight for them if we lose we'll compromise if we win great we'll push them forward all that kind of to and fro give and take has gone it's now either our tribe wins and we will do anything to stop it rigging the elections or or trying to even block the certification process that the republicans tried to do this time by force extraordinary moment i mean it failed and it was a bit of a farce but the intent was was clearly dangerous. But do you take my point that there is something also dangerous about the embracing of identity politics within the Democrat Party and, and what that could potentially bring? I mean, over here in the UK, I'm very much of the view that, I, that La the Labour Party embracing identity politics has made it unelectable, or at least that's a, that's a, a large part of it, I feel. I mean, did well, you share my The demographics in America are different, of course, than the UK, yeah. in which which we have, in which the presence of again, it's all a question of categories, non-whites, whatever that means, uh, is much greater. And so they think that my fear is that when these tribal allegiances fuse with race and gender, that then you have much deeper psychological reflexes that make compromise even less possible. Right. Uh, so I'm very afraid of that. The good news is that minorities are moving to the right in America. The, the last election showed that Latinos and to certain extent black men in particular moved towards Trump after yep. four years of seeing that. And if you look at the new results out of California, you also see Latino men moving rightward towards Republicans because they don't identify as Latinxes or whatever we're supposed to call no, them. I, I <laughs> saw the survey data on that and they, it's something like 4% of Latino people call themselves lat Latinx. And this is something <laughs> that's- say Latinx, but I say Latinx because it, it just highlights the absolute absurdity of it. Even I don't know how to pronounce totally it. totally absurd, they still continue it. It's like the, the, the administration does, the New York Times does, all these institutions do, even though no one uses it. Well, no Why? one, no one- no one uses Womaxen either with the, with the ex in woman. Uh, and, and yet this is something, again, it's, it's, it's a small, you describe them as a clique, a small clique. It's a, it's a small group of very powerful people. And I often get the feeling that the reason that they're so powerful is they're, they're quite scary, right? So if they're in an institution and, and you, you daren't put a foot wrong because they're like a dangerous dog, they'll rip your throat out. Well, they do. And that's why so many people had to leave. Yeah. Uh, uh, things were getting really rough at New York Magazine for me. Uh, well, let's talk about that a bit because you had you, obviously you, you were they they fired you essentially because you weren't towing the editorial line. Um, this must be so liberating now. You, you know, now you've got your own Substack. It's so popular. You can say exactly what you think. Do you feel like you should have done this before? I mean, you were a pioneer of the blog form anyway. Well, I did. I did it for fifteen years by myself, and I think I got into the habit of saying whatever I wanted to say. And then I had to discover as I went back into the woke media that, oh, that's a little problematic now. Nonetheless, they did publish a lot of my stuff. I mean, I pushed the envelope really far. I thought that uh, that I'd be safe as a token, but that wasn't that wasn't uh, that wasn't to be. And uh, but again, outside of it, I'm not constrained by that, uh, and I am 
three times, get three times the money. Which right. is the other thing that's driving them out of their minds is that we've, we've, we've proven our market value. I mean, this is the magazine that nominated me for Pulitzer the year before they fired me. I'm just, just that's, that, that's, the, that's the paradox here. Do you, when did you first start noticing that there were these, you know, this eye over your shoulder, uh, you know, clutching their pearls at the things you would say? Well, the, the fact checks would come back as if they weren't quite fact checks. They were sort of woke checks. They were okay. arguments against me. Um, uh, you can't use this word for that meaning. Uh, and just the sense that my editor and editors, who, who were great, to be honest with you, were under incredible, intense internal pressure yeah. uh, to correct me, to prevent me. They were embarrassed. The, the staffers were embarrassed by publishing me. They regarded it as a, a, literally a hostile work environment. To work in office where work I with you. No, I wasn't even there. I, was, I never went into the office. I worked from home. But nonetheless, publishing <laughs> my columns created a hostile work environment within the New York office when I'm living in Washington. That so was just the your, level. Your general aura, that, that, that it was a danger, it was toxic to these people. You know, I, I was spreading evil toxicity throughout the office all the way from, from Washington, D.C. Uh, look, my editors were staying people, but eventually... And my best friend editor who, who left, and it was after that, that that things went a little awry. Yes, and, and, and this seems to be a, a problem with so many publications. I mean, the, the New York Times being the obvious uh, example. But um, do do you see this as as a how can I put it uh, a salvageable situation? I mean, it's it's been called a legitimation crisis. You know, the, the, we see that the the, the 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 news outlets aren't telling you the news; they're telling you what to think about the news, and they're continuing and and misrepresenting. And it's so overt now, and that of course gives some kind of credence to when Trump was talking about uh, the fake news and all the ridiculous rhetoric. And that's not a good thing either. You know, no. is is there a way this can be? Salvage. Well, as I say, they did repeal prohibition eventually. Um, right. there, are, there are moments when reality just defiantly rears its ugly head. And there are obviously people within the democratic and liberal camp who understand what's actually happening in the country mm. and, and are realizing things. And I've noticed that Times actually has begun to adjust a little bit. Um, even the New Yorker just ran a piece that gave credence, believe it or not, to the possibility that genetics may play a part in human behavior. That's a right, huge right. step forward for the New Yorker. I mean, that, that's a, that was a huge, brave concession to reality. I mean, I sort of share your view on this in, insofar as every now and then there's a victory, there's a pushback. I'm sensing those antibodies that you're describing, or I, I get a secret message from someone who's on the woke side saying, actually, I sort of agree with you now. Um, and so I'm seeing more and more of that. But then every time it happens, I just see uh, the identitarian left, whatever you want to call them, the woke left, doubling down, uh, reasserting the fictions that they present as fact. And and the problem is they are so powerful that sometimes I just sort of think academia's lost, isn't it? The media's lost. I mean, I honestly go to those sort of lengths and I'm probably wrong. Um, but but I, I'm not, I mean, let's take the- entirely wrong, Andrew. I mean, I, I don't want to sound Pollyannish about this at all. <laughs> um, I just- uh... I just believe that reality wins in the end. It's a, just yeah. a cost, depends what the cost is in the short term. And I also believe that members of minority groups in particular know mm. that some of this stuff is both condescending to them, generalizes about minorities in ways that are not fair or just, and is actually deeply racist. And, yeah. and, and they are going to eventually move. Now, if they move in any significant way towards the Republicans, 
then that the whole democratic strategy is fakakta. Look, yeah. Texas is becoming increasingly Latino, but still very strongly Republican. Yeah. Uh, and once that breaks up, Latinos are going to be in 60 years time, people are going to call them white. This is, this yeah. is a, it's entirely a, a process that you see with previous immigrant groups. Um, and I, I want us to just, to be honest, to get past the notion of white and non-white and yeah. talk about individuals again, talk about the success of entrepreneurs, the success of people that build things, that create things, including African-Americans. What you also don't hear is the extraordinary success stories of African-Americans. I mean, yeah. in, think, for example, of any demographic group in the world that has as much cultural global power as African-Americans. Yeah. Our music in everyone, everybody wants to be one. Every kid everywhere. It's an incredible achievement. It's up there with the British monarchy in terms of PR. And yeah. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And to have that not part of the equation and understanding the United yeah. States interaction with African Americans, not see that America itself, white America, is far blacker than any European country. Uh, yeah. I, I, it, it, it's so fused with the genius of African-American uh, culture, life, energy, and, and artistic genius and sports ability, all, everything. And instead of celebrating this, they want to continue to obsess. And instead also of focusing on the real issues for black kids, for example, African-American kids in, in the inner city, that they don't have stable homes, which yeah. is the most important thing to do well in life. Do you, do you think it is the the push to in, to introduce critical race theory to kids? Is, is that what what the what the final straw will be for a lot of people? Once the kids are being told, like you know, you're telling black kids they will always be oppressed, they've got no life chances. You're telling white kids they're all complicit in white supremacy. You've had over in America a lot of racial segregation. Let's call it that, where they're dividing classrooms up according to race. They had it here at the American School in London, where they were dividing kids up by race for after school activities. So that is. I think there's something about when you target people's kids, then they wake up, maybe. Um, could well, that well, be right? The school board meetings are aflame across the country and not just from white parents. Uh, I, you, who knows how this works out? I mean, I do think there may be lawsuits in which people will defend themselves against critical race theory using the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You're not allowed to discriminate against against white people as well as against black people. Yeah. And generalizing about races and using that as a, as, a, as a way to hire and fire people is unconstitutional. It's illegal. Uh, and the notion that, well, we have to hire lots now because in the past, uh, white men got it all, to which you're saying, well, so is it payback? And did the younger generation that had nothing to do with this, did they deserve to be punished this way? Is, is this what it is? Uh, and if you do that, how do you ever heal? How do you ever move forward so what what do you say to people who say to you yeah well all that critical race theory is is teaching people about the reality of history and the reality of slavery and and, and the reality of injustice and why why are you trying to stand in the way of that and of course that inevitably leads to the accusation of racism i'm not i i think the one thing that needs to be done and that crt kind of indirectly exposed is that it's true that the united states has an incredibly dark and wicked history when it comes to race. And it has been overly softened by historians. It has not been fully explored in its horror, mm. uh, even though that has changed over the last 20, 30 years. The question is not that. 
That is important. It's real, it's dark, it needs to be exposed, understood. The question is whether that is the true meaning of the entire project. Mm-hmm. Whether America itself is in its DNA a slaveocracy and not a democracy. And that worse, this is the argument of the 1619 project and of critical race theory, that the constitution itself and the Declaration of Independence are masks, they're deliberately designed to conceal the real agenda, which is the exploitation and immiseration of non-white people. And that's what America means, will always mean, by the way, they don't believe it will ever disappear. That is what's not true, because America is that, but it is also the country that hundreds of thousands sacrificed their lives to end slavery. It's also the country of the civil rights movement. It's also the country of the overcoming of these ancient prejudices and hatreds. Mm. And it is an ongoing story, the story that Obama told uh, of greater and greater inclusion. And it is also about freedom. It's about freedom of religion, freedom of speech. There are many different things you could say define America. And I do think, yes, race hatred is one of them, absolutely, but not the only one. And if that's your only lens to what happens in America, and that is their only lens, you're wrong. And you are also throwing out so much of the baby with the bathwater. So you're, you're acknowledging the kernel of truth in what they say, but, but that effectively something like the 1619 Project is very reductive and, and presents a very kind of simplistic narrative, which is just as, 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 as false as those who were lax when it came to teaching the rea- about the realities of slavery that came before it. Yes, it's a massive overcorrection. And it's designed entirely not for intellectual or academic reasons, but for political reasons. The goal is to change the society now by persuading people America is so evil, it can only be dismantled. It cannot be reformed. Mm. That's the argument. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. That's what it is. Dismantle no. is what and the even the, um, the The fact checkers from the 1619 Project, am I right in thinking they, they even flagged up that this wasn't historically correct? And yet it was a... They won the Pulitzer, right? So, so you have these institutions that are bolstering the lies. And, yes. that, and that, that's why it feels, that's why sometimes I'm, I have a more pessimistic view because I feel like, you know, if, if, if that's the case, you, if, if the powerful are, are bolstering this, how can we push, possibly push back against it? Have you ever pushed back against powerful orthodoxies? You, you nip their heels, you, you challenge them at every point, you watch certain principles that they have espoused be exposed as false. You know, so much of it is exposed as false. Implicit bias doesn't actually really replicate anywhere you can find it. Trigger warnings turn out they don't actually work. Uh, uh, Classes in race consciousness turn out to make people more, not less racist. All these things. The idea that if you make everyone obsess about race and you tell kids that they can know everything they know about a person by the first impressions, yeah. You don't expect that to create racism? Of course it will. <laughs> it's, yes. I mean, it is much more human to be tribal than to be liberal. Much more yeah. human. We are much more likely to do that. That's why it works, I think. Because it's with human nature. It gives you sanction to be a racist for moral reasons. What more could you want from life to get rid of all those ugly impulses and to wrap them in righteousness? And 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 that's that's it. The other thing, not to get too gloomy with you, but <laughs> I do think that the role of Christianity culturally 
played an underappreciated role in defending the rights of the individual as equal, as opposed yeah. to the group, because Christianity really created the, the inviolability of the individual soul, that yes. notion that that's what matters. And liberalism sprung out of that or drew on that as it, as it emerged. And yep. this, is, this is an attempt to end that. And so this is a great fight to fight. And, well, I think one of, the, and, yeah. one of the big problems will be about language. You know, I mean, th these are people who describe themselves as liberals, but they are anything but. Uh, and they talk about things like social justice, anti-racism, things that sound so wonderful. But when you dig down into what they really mean, they are, as you say, making society more racist, you know? I was once called an LGBTQ person. And I was like, what? Excuse me? <laughs> how, how could I, how could anyone be such a thing? So you're lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Yes, uh, which meant I could also be straight. I mean, it's an, it's an entirely idiotic attempt to foist an ideological construct into the language. And I don't know about you, but some people do say LGBT sometimes in conversation, but most gay people don't use those contraptions all the time in conversation. It's just too weird. It, no, they, they don't. But I, you know, I've got a bit nervous about being in the gay. I mean, I, I was in Soho the other day and I was walking past some gay pubs and I started thinking, but if, but if, but if someone were to recognize me and, and, and think what I've said is evil and against LGBT, would I be, would I be even welcome here anymore? You know, this is the, this is the, I don't know if you get this because you live in an area which is predominantly gay, right? Provincetown is a, but well, it's is that right? Or is that gay. Just, super gay. There we go. Super Ridiculously gay. Ridiculously it, gay. It, it's, uh, but I live in Washington, which isn't quite, quite as gay, but. Uh, it's pretty gay. Look, <laughs> I had, it is, it's like all government centers is more, I don't know, we're attracted to these, these power centers somehow. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so if you had I have had that. I was called the Antichrist. I had, I had, I was attacked in a leather bar. Uh, I had drinks thrown at me. I was yelled collaborator at times. I was picketed. Uh, I was, my private life was ransacked. I was, everything was thrown at me. Absolutely everything they could do. Uh, but I have to say, but, but uh, again, it's like thinking left Twitter is the world. If you actually walk into a gay bar as a regular person, especially in a place like this, where I've been for 25 years, People know me, you know, they know I'm not this monster that they read about. And, and most of them are, are cool and, and mellow. And I, I don't have any, and I don't think you should feel in any way bad about going, because lots of people there also will agree with me about certain yeah. things. But there is a little creepiness about the imposition of this. I noticed this ghastly thing called the progress flag. Have you, have yes. you seen this thing? It it's an like ugly a, flag with plenty of extra stripes. It looks like a licorice all sort on acid, <laughs> is what it does. And it, and, but notice that I noticed this year, the, I mean, I don't like the rainbow flag either. It's so lame, but nonetheless, what you've seen in P-Town this year is a lot of the old rainbow flags, but slowly this new flag with the black and brown and yes. as, if, as if they don't understand the rainbow was a metaphor. We weren't actually defending purple gaze and green gaze and yellow yeah. gaze. It was a metaphor for Christ's sake. Uh, and now there's a pressure if you fly the old rainbow flag are you really, is that now a white supremacist flag? Do, yeah. it's, it's, it's what Vakov Havel speaks of in the Greengrocer story. It's people, people put Black Lives Matter in their window, every single window, not one missing because if it wasn't there, yeah. you were uh, obviously a supporter of white supremacy. And this year I also noticed for the first time a store advertising that it's woman owned. I'm like, well, right. why would I buy weed from you because it's woman owned?
Like, what are you trying to say here? Should I this not buy like, things from man-owned? I mean, what? where does this tribalism end? Oh, it's where identity politics leads us, to further and further and further division. The progress flag is probably going to end up looking like a Jackson Pollock at some point. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, Well, it would be a little bit more aesthetically pleasing if it were. Yeah, there, there is that. It's a well, uh, thank you to our sexual orientation, I have to say that flag. I have, to, I have to say that you've actually cheered me up with your optimism about the possibility that we could get through this. Uh, and I really appreciate you, you coming on to talk to me, Andrew. I just want to plug your book again uh, because it's fantastic. This is Out on a Limb, Collected Essays. And like you say, it's, it's, it's the record of what you actually think as opposed to what people claim you think, the ones who yeah. haven't read your work. <laughs> just be transparent about it. And um, I, I hope people, more people in Britain pick it up. Because I, uh, I do think a lot of it is, is, is very salient over there it's also got pieces on thatcher on diana on britain on boris and a whole bunch of other stuff before we go can you just tell us where to where people can read your Substack? yes just type in andrew sullivan Substack in your google and you'll come across it it's called the weekly dish it comes out every friday uh over a hundred thousand people now get it in their mailboxes please join them um it it has a lead column then it has every week the strongest dissents against the argument I made in the last column, which I am forced to rebut or respond to or accept. So that's what makes it different. It's a very internally open substack. It has lots of reader views, also a contest, all the rest of it. It's, it's a fun weekly uh, guide to the week in American and global politics. Thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. And thank you for joining us on the Free Speech Nation podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please do like and subscribe and I'll see you next week.